Hi, this is David Sachs, and welcome to Spiritual Tools for an Outrageous World. Every week we do a little couples therapy between us and God. It's a chance to deepen and explore our most important relationship. Okay, I'm glad you're here. Just a moment ago, I, I said we're, we're about to start, and then I just gave that a moment's thought, and I said, God willing. It reminded me of something that I heard from Rib Shlomo. So he said that Sadiqim, when they sit in front of a plate of food before they start eating, they pray that God should feed them. So you say, well, wait a second, it's a done deal. I've got the plate of food in front of me. Surely my prayer has been answered. But if one really has a more finely attuned awareness and a higher sense of what we call Yira Shemayim, you know that there's a lifetime between taking the fork and putting it from the food to your mouth. That only happens with the grace of God. You don't want to be compulsive, but the idea of saying God willing is a good practice just to reacquaint yourself with the fact that the next moment doesn't happen without God's help. If someone says to me, like, can you come and do such a thing tomorrow? And I can, and I want to. I write, yes, God willing. I, I, always, I always do that. Or, or if I'm going to take a trip, I'll say, I'll be arriving next Wednesday, God willing. Or sometimes I'll avoid it and I'll just say, I'm scheduled to arrive next Wednesday. But I'm always very careful about that because I, I, I think that these are subtle acts of arrogance. If we say that we're going to be in a place next Wednesday, how do we know that we're going to be in a place next Wednesday? Because I say so, that I can do something without the blessing of God. And I feel like these are the little things that are the big things. Because then you're really living with an awareness of the actual reality of the world. So anyway, this should actually give us strength and make us happy and make us feel closer to God. There was a rabbi who, he would do sort of like this encounter with people where he would help them break through certain things in terms of their relationship with God. And he would say, now feel God's presence around you. And then he would say, now how do you feel? And I, I thought that that was a fascinating question. Like, why? Because there are people who would feel terrible. <laughs> and, and so then he would help them work with that feeling. That's a question that you should ask yourselves. Now feel God's presence around you. Now, how do you feel? Does that make you feel safer? Or does that make you feel less safe? Does that make you feel more loved? Or does that make you feel less loved? Because it should make you feel safer and it should make you feel more loved and more protected. And if it doesn't, that means that there are certain issues that a person has to work through. And I would say the fundamental issue, and in all of my talks, or many of them, I keep on hammering this point because I think this one point will answer 100 questions, which is, I'll phrase it very strongly. If you want to believe in God like a Jew, you must believe that God is good. And you must believe that everything that happens is God's expression of love and doing good for you. If you don't believe that, you do not believe in God as the Torah teaches. 
You might believe in an almighty power. You might even believe in an almighty power who gave us the Torah. But that's not Hashem. That's not Hashem. There's the, the, the famous mushroom from the Dubna Magid back in the day, before airplanes, people traveled by ship liner. A big, big luxury ship pulls into a port and, you know, it was a whole profession, porters. People who would see the people with lots of luggage and, you know, they would, they would help them with their bags and get a tip in exchange. And that was a, that was a profession for, for many, many people for many, many years. And so someone is, is watching and he's like, I don't know, I imagine he's drooling as he sees one, you know, suitcase pile on top of another suitcase on top of another suitcase. Obviously, whoever is traveling with that much luggage is very wealthy. And if he can help that person, he's got a good tip coming. So he goes and he starts carting all that luggage. And while he's carting the luggage, it's very, very heavy. It's not an easy job. And he's talking to himself the whole time and he's, he's moaning and he's like, ah, oh, there's so much work, I, I, it's so heavy. And, and he's like, I better get a big tip. I better, that guy better pay me, he better pay me big. And finally he gets to the door of the person's house and the rich man says, that's not my luggage. <laughs> he said, I had a small patch of diamonds. Right? Meaning to say the lightest thing in the world. And the Dubna Magid says that there's so many people who go through life and they go, you know, the Torah is so hard. These, are so, these mitzvahs are so hard. You better give me a big reward. You better have a big reward stored up for me. And God says back, my mitzvahs are diamonds. They're very light. Right? So... So the idea is, who are we serving? We can think that we're serving God. And meanwhile, we've created an entire entity, which is not Hashem. One of the, one of the key prophecies, and we say it, it, Shabbos Tshuva, the special Shabbos between Rosh Hashanah and Yom Kippur, we say, Shuva Hashem Ad Elokecha. Reb Leibla Eger says, you know what it means? Return until Hashem, like the actual God, until Hashem is your God. <laughs> In other words, you have to refine who it is that you're serving. Because a lot of us have this false concept of what God is. And we've got to understand really who it is that we're serving until we have this revelation of God as the one who only loves us and only wants good for us. Because remember, we are an aspect of God, or a subset of God, right? So, so why would God want to be beating himself up? <laughs> that doesn't make any sense, right? Like, when the Rebbes talk about the closeness between one Jew and another Jew, they say, would someone pick up a, a knife in his hand and then stab his other hand? It's part of the same body. So how can you attack the extension of your very soul? So if we were just to take that a quantum leap, why would God himself be attacking himself? If we're an aspect of God. So if you want proof that God loves us, well, God loves himself, doesn't he? <laughs> so why wouldn't God love every aspect of himself? And to the extent that there is an aspect which hasn't been fully revealed yet of God's goodness, 
which we'll translate as evil, because there is evil in the world, then that's waiting for us to either conquer it or to reveal the good that's there. But usually, in the face of direct opposition, it means to conquer. It means God desires for us to conquer. You see, we have to understand that one of the aspects of building is destroying. This This is in halacha, by the way. So it's always good to take a philosophical concept and to show you where it is in halacha. Um, I heard in the name of Rabbi Soloveitchik that, that he would make this point strongly because the idea is that, you know, when we talk about simsum, when we talk about God taking his, an aspect of his divine light and compressing it until it makes the physical universe, right? So, so you can think of that in terms of ideas and halacha as well. That when something is an idea, when it's a philosophical concept, it's more in the realm of light. But when it becomes a practical action that's commanded us, then it enters into the physical world and you see how it lands, so to speak, in the here and now. So so it's good to see where ideas are in halacha. So what I just told you was, that everything is God. It's all God. The only thing that exists is God. And yet we have evil in the world. Right? So what does God want us to do with this evil? God wants us to destroy this evil. But now I'm telling you something from the 39 malachas of Shabbos. That destroying is an act of building. And I'll just explain that. One of the 39 categories, let's say... I want to knock down a house. Why do I want to knock down that house? Because I want to build a new, bigger, beautiful house. So you say, well, you're, you're tearing down that house. Someone could still inhabit that house. You're a vandal. You're destroying. But no, no, no. The only reason why I'm doing that is to make something more beautiful in its place. So that type of destruction is actually called building. And so that's one of the categories of work on Shabbos is destroying because the destroying is for the sake of the building. So when God tells us to eradicate evil, it's not destruction for destruction's sake. It's destruction for the revelation of the light that's there. Now, I want to tell you a story, something that happened to me yesterday. In in the neighborhood here, on Beverly Drive, if you, if you know where that store was, it was there for many years called Zena. It's now a construction site. On the outside of the building, there's a, a mural that's being painted. And it's going up in sort of slow motion. A very interesting mural. You know, bright blue skies. It looks like out of a children's cartoon, actually. And the teddy bear has these white eyes that give it sort of like this edgy, almost sci-fi kind of feeling. So anyway, as I'm walking home from shul yesterday, I was fortunate enough to see the artist was there. And he was adding another component to the mural that he's making. And I went up to him and I thanked him because I've been enjoying the work. I've been looking at it, trying to puzzle it out. 
And he, he told me that there was a storyline that was there. And that was totally unclear to me. It just seemed to be various drawings. And he showed me the first panel and he said, you see, the bear is standing on, on this little pile of sand. And then over there, he's dug himself into a hole. And then over there, and he pointed to a panel that hadn't gone up yet. And over there, he digs himself out of the hole. And that's the end of the narrative that was there. And it was very unclear that there was a narrative there. And I thought immediately that that's an amazing parable about our lives. We react to the various events going on in our life as separate entities. And oftentimes, we're not aware that we're part of this narrative that's unfolding. And not only that, but that last panel hadn't even been drawn yet. And that really correlates with our life, because we know that we're part of this narrative, but we don't know what's the next step. How does it wrap up? But in terms of the grand narrative, we do know how it wraps up. Because there is a happy ending. Because the perfection that God sought to create at the very beginning, before he even created a world, God envisioned a perfect world. That is the narrative that we're part of. And that is what's unfolding. And that's why we're here, to be partners with God, to complete that narrative. <clears throat> now, with that in mind, let's, let's talk about paro. Because paro is opposition. And I saw something that kind of sparked my imagination. I'm going to read you a, a couple of lines here. Regarding Paro, God says to Moshe, I shall harden his heart, and he will not send out the people. You shall say to Paro, so said Hashem, my firstborn son is Israel. So I say to you, send out my son that he may serve me. But you have refused to send him out. Behold, I shall kill your firstborn son. Now, if I were to ask you, where did I just read from? I think most people would say, and I've asked this question over Shabbos, most people said that it's, it's right before the 10th plague, which makes sense, because that's, that's the plague of the death of the firstborn son. And that's the end of the process. That's these 10 plagues that culminate in that. But guess what? I just read you from the end of Parsha Shmos, where Moshe hadn't even gone to Egypt yet. In other words, God tells us the end of the story before the beginning of the story. He says Paro's not going to let us go. He tells us how the entire series of plagues is going to culminate, even before we go in. Now, let me tell you something. It's a really good storyteller who can tell you the end of the story at the beginning and still keep you interested. That is, by the way... One of the problems of people who like to tell stories is they tell you the end of the story in the beginning and then no one is interested. <laughs> no one wants to listen because you already know where the story is going. But God can tell you the end of the story before the story starts and you're glued. Do you know why you're glued? Because we've got skin in the game. In fact, every cell of our body is in the game. We're so involved. 
But that's the problem. We're so involved that we lose sight of the fact that the storyline has already been given to us. And then we doubt and then we get confused. So I'm telling you, if you want to get through life in a coherent way, you must hold on to the script because the script contains the end of the story. And what does that mean, practically speaking? That means you have to learn Torah every single day because those are your glasses. You know, I, I was remembering there's a, a famous Twilight Zone episode called The Bookworm. And there's this really cranky guy, a misanthrope, right? Someone who hates people. And he just wants to read. He just wants to be left alone so that he can read. And then he gets his greatest wish, the apocalypse. Like, everyone's dead except for him. And he's so happy. <laughs> he can finally read. And then he steps on his glasses that he can't see without and the episode ends. <laughs> that's, that's the Twilight Zone. So, so, in other words, what kind of glasses are you seeing the world through? And I know my, my father, he should rest in peace, was a psychologist. And I remember as his, his health sort of declined, <clears throat> not sort of declined, he... I remember very well when he was diagnosed with cancer, he said to me these words. He says, I'm about to start an adventure. That, that's what he said to me. Those words, those words. And, and during the process of, of his treatment, they had to take off uh, uh, one of his legs from the knee down. And he continued to travel around the world. You know? I mean, he was, he was an amazing, amazing man. And he told me that in the absence of news, the mind will go to the worst case scenario. In other words, it's almost like the law of gravity, but as applied to emotions, that you will be pulled down to the worst case scenario over time if you don't get some sort of update, right? So in other words, just to relate it back to his situation, it's hard to wait for test results. And the longer it takes, the more the mind goes to the negative. So we have to counteract that because we have so much skin in the game, so to speak. We have to counteract that by looking at the end, which has already been told to us from the beginning. Those are our glasses. That and the firm knowledge that God is good. So God puts Paro in front of us. Now you can ask a good question, which is, why does Paro have to be so dang stubborn? Why? And I'm going to make the question even stronger. We have a claw, we have a foundational thought, which is Maisim Ava. Wait, let me do it again. Maisim. That the actions of our fathers, meaning Avram, Yitzhak, and Yaakov, and our holy mothers, the actions of our patriarchs and matriarchs are basically a fractal or a microcosm of future events for us. 
So if that's the case, you know, Sarah was taken captive by Avimelech. By the way, these are all honorific titles. Avimelech, Paro, a sheik, a sultan, a king, a chieftain. These are all like leader words, right? So in Egypt, the, the leader word at that point was Avimelech, but that's the same as Paro. So Avimelech took Sarah into his home, and then God closed up all of his orifices, and then he said, this is really uncomfortable. <laughs> How do I make this stop? And God said, well, let that woman who's married to that man leave. And he's like, I didn't even know they were married. Get out of here and take a lot of my wealth with you. Just go. Just go. Right? So if the past is predictor for the future, we have a very nice example in the past how Paro could have just said, okay, I'm going to let the Jews go. So, so why doesn't Paro let the Jews go? Right? Based on our model, which we draw on more successfully in many other instances. By the way, Paro does let the Jews go, like Avimelech let Sarah go, and the Jews leave with a lot of wealth, just like Sarah and Abraham left Avimelech's territory with a lot of wealth. So there is a close parallel, except it falls a little bit short with Paro's stubbornness. But what did we hear from the very outset? God said, I'm going to make him stubborn. So that's a new element that God tells us that he's adding to the situation. But why does God have to add that to the situation? I'll tell you, I'll give you an answer and then I'll give you a support for it. Because if Paro had done it intentionally, then the Jews would have said, Paro let the Jews out of Egypt. God didn't take the Jews out of Egypt. Paro let the Jews out of Egypt. And now I'll give you a support from that from the Rishonah Rebbe. At the beginning of Parshish B'Shalach, when the Jews finally leave Egypt, we finally get out of there, it begins with the word Vayehi. Now that's strange, because the Gomorrah says, any time a verse in the Torah begins with the word Vayehi, that that means something negative is going to happen. So here we've got like the greatest simcha, the greatest happy occasion. The Jews are finally getting out of slavery after hundreds of years. What are you starting that verse off with the word Vayehi for? And the original Rebbe says, because the Jews thought that Paro was letting them out, not that God was taking them out. But for all time, though, you know, we have to cut our brothers and sisters. And by the way, that was us <laughs> just a few lifetimes ago. We've got to, let's cut ourselves a little bit of slack because, you know, it was very overwhelming. The circumstances were very overwhelming. But from a historical point of view, the, more, the further we get out of it, the more we see that it was God taking us out of Egypt. There's no question. So I think the reason why God wants Paro to be stubborn is because God wants to show us for all times, for all generations, that no opposition stands before God, not in the world and not in our own personal lives. No opposition stands before the word of God. And so for precisely that matter, it has to stand up and be in opposition so that God will show us that there is no opposition 
if God doesn't want there to be opposition. And with that in mind, I want to take a deep dive into the word paro itself. And these ideas, they, they came to me over Shabbos. I was very grateful. So, so let's look at the word paro. And let me just introduce this. We're going to analyze the letters. Let me just give you a brief introduction to the letters in Torah thought. Basically, the letters are the DNA of reality. And God takes this outer garment of his light. Remember, we don't say that God equals the world and the world equals God. That, that's actually a heretical thought. Okay, that's called pantheism. We believe in panentheism. Don't ask me what that means. But basically it means that God fills the world and exists dimensions beyond the world. You need that second part too in order for it to be Judaism. Otherwise, you're just a nature, a nature worshiper. Okay? So, and by saying God equals the world and the world equals God, it might sound very spiritual. And it is in a way because you're saying all materiality is suffused with spirituality. But by saying God equals the world and the world equals God, you're putting parameters around God, which is completely inappropriate because there are no boundaries to God. I remember I finally settled on a word that I felt comfortable using in describing God, the infinite. And then a rabbi that I really love and respect said to me, why are you putting parameters on God? And I thought, wow, even the word infinite, even the word infinite is a parameter. Can you imagine? Can you imagine? So even the word infinite doesn't apply to God. So... So God takes this aspect of his light and he makes vessels for the light. Now, those vessels then are going to have lower vessels. And then those vessels are going to have lower vessels. And then those vessels are going to have lower vessels. Now, listen to this. The highest vessels for the light are also made out of light. Now, eventually, there's going to be this vessel for the light, and you know what it's going to be called? The Hebrew letters. The Hebrew letters are really energy wavelengths. And now God is now going to combine the letters, and he's going to create the material universe. By the way, it says by Adam HaRishon, when God commanded him to name everything, to name the animals, that how did he name them? Was Adam a poet? And the Kabbalists explain that he saw inside each creation the name of that animal. In other words, he saw the letters that God had used to create that animal, and that became the name. So imagine if I looked into a tree. A tree is Ayin Sadi. And I saw those letters, Ayin Sadi, and I just read it, and I said, Eitz. That's what the name of the tree will be. You're just reading the energy which is in the object. So I'm looking at this word paro. Paro is the opposition that God is creating. And here's how you spell it. Peresh, ayin hey. And I thought, okay, peresh, I'm going to get to in a moment. I've got a lot to say on peresh. But I was thinking, what am I going to say on the ayin hey? And I said, okay, well, ayin hay adds up to 75. And at that moment, while I'm sort of just contemplating ayin hay 75, 
I was looking in front of me and there was only one person standing there. That's someone from our shul who was celebrating his 75th birthday. I mean, these interactions, the idea that the letters themselves are the elemental aspects of creation. I mean, it was just very striking that that happened, right? So let's get into the word para. So it begins with the word par. Now, peresh is a construct that you see in the Sifre Kedoshim, in the holy books. Why? Because par is the number 280, and 280 is the gamatri of the five final letters. So that's a whole study in itself, the five final letters. We've got 22 letters, and then five of those have a special script form that we use if the letter ends the word. So in terms of the spiritual quality of the final letters, they represent din. Din means justice or gvura. That's a form of power. And the opposite of din would be chesed, which is kindness. Din, gvura, is something that shapes things. So if you think about it, the final letter says, that's the end of the word. That's all, folks, for the word. <laughs> Moving on to the next word. That's the word. All done. That's gvura. That's din. Now, I woke up with a thought, and I'll just, uh, just share it with you. One of the ongoing ways that we get to serve God is how we get out of bed in the morning. It's on the first page of the Code of Jewish Law. You have to get out of bed like a lion, right? Sometimes when I'm less successful, I have in mind like a sleepy lion. <laughs> but a lion nonetheless. You stay in the category of a lion. They're levels. They're levels. Sleepy, sleepy is one of the levels. Anyway, the Rambam says you go to bed on your left side. And there are health benefits to that since your stomach lays on your liver, which warms up the, the stomach and aids in digestion. But the left side represents din or gavora, like the final letters. And I was thinking, you know, on a spiritual level, it makes sense that you go to bed on your left side because that's the end to the day. Right? That's your ending the day. And if you want another visual, you know, you stretch out, you're like a final nun. Right? That's the end of the day. Very good. Then, before you get up, no matter what position you find yourself in when you start to become conscious, just roll over to your right side. And you can have in mind that you're Makayim the sheet of the Rambam, that you go to bed on your left side and you're waking up now on your right side. Now, I had in mind that basically you're going from din to chesed because the right side represents kindness, which is chesed. In other words, now you're going to begin the day and look at all the good things that you're going to do in the day. And it says that before dawn, God is already storing up all of the good things that he's going to do for the world that day. That's why it's a very special thing to daven what we call nates, when the sun just comes up because you're intersecting with all of the good that God is bringing into the world at that moment, in the coming day. So you're going from din to chesed. Now here's the new idea. Din is gematria 54. Chesed is gematria 72. Guess what the difference is? 18, which is life. In other words, as you roll over, have in mind, you're bringing life into the world. Right? So, so let's get back to para. So paro, the first two letters are par, 
which represents the final letters. So, so Paro is tough, right? He's like, he, he, he's opening up with Gevura. So what's this idea that Paro starts off with par? Well, let's look at the other two letters, ayin and he. Well, ayin is silent, and he is just air. <laughs> if you say the letter he, you see air comes out of your mouth. In other words, it's just wind. It's nothingness and wind. So this is our first level in understanding the name of Paro. Paro stands up and he says, this is it, folks. It's this and no more. That's the first two letters of his name. And guess what's backing him up? Nothing. <laughs> Just a lot of wind behind him. Nothing to hold him up. Okay, let's go deeper. So we've got par, the first two letters of Paro's name, and then we have the letter ayin. Ayin is the number 70. So if I were to ask you, how many years did the first person live? Adam Harishon, how many years did he live? So the answer is 930. And if you think about it, for the first person, that's a bit of a random number. Like why, like it's aesthetically displeasing. Why 930? And the rabbis address this question. The answer is, is that Adam Rishon was supposed to live for a thousand years, which is, that's very satisfying. That makes sense. So then where did those other 70 years go? So the rabbis explain that before Adam ate from the tree of knowledge, and he saw all the generations moving forward. He saw that there was this very exalted soul, this very, very great soul that was going to die at childbirth. And that was the soul of King David, David HaMelech. So Adam gave 70 years of his life so that David HaMelech should live. The Megaleya Mukos explains that the name Adam, remember, he's the first person, which means all of humanity, all of future humanity is contained within Adam. Adam is Roshe Tevos, you spell it Aleph Dalid Mem, for Adam, that's the Aleph, David, that's the second letter, and Mashiach is the third. In other words, all of the future of humanity is contained within, within Adam, but not just that, but the narrative of the redemption of the world is contained within Adam, right? You could have picked a lot of great people there. You don't see Moshe Rabbeinu's name there. And there are a lot of great people who are left out of that little list. <laughs> but that's, those are the checkpoints because that is the story of creation. Adam, David, Mashiach. So Paro stands up and he says that it's me and it's no further. It's par. This is the end. The final letters, right? Pei Reish, 280. Those are the five final letters. And what's standing behind him if you keep on going? Mashiach. And what about the letter He? Well, there's five books to Tehillim. That's the book of Psalms. That's what David Amelech wrote. But let's go a little bit deeper. When we look at the name Yudke Vavke, right, and I always tell you to make it like a, a, a map going from above to below, right? Yud is the highest emanation of light. Then we have He, which stands for 
Olam Abba, the next world, says Reb Tzadok HaKon. Then we have the Vav, which is drawing down the light into this world, the bottom He, which is where we dwell. So the last letter of Paro's name is He. So we go from Par, which is, this is the end, folks. But if you keep on enduring, you get to King David, and then you get to the letter He. But which He? Well, it's the He of this world, which becomes the He of the next world. <laughs> you go from this world to the next world, right? And that's the journey. But you got to stay in it to win. You got to stay in it to win. So now let's go deeper. Structurally speaking, there's a very curious thing that God does in terms of organizing Parshas Ve'era. Moshe Rabbeinu says something, which is a Kalvachomer. Kalvachomer is a, a logical construct that you see in the Gomorrah a lot, which, which goes like this. If this is true, how much more so is this true? Right? So one, one thing is derived from the other thing. Okay, good. So Moshe Rabbeinu, Moshe Rabbeinu famously says a Kalvachomer. He says to God, if the Jewish people won't listen to me, why should Paro listen to me? And then Moshe describes himself as a person with uncircumcised lips, which means there's a, an orla, a blockage around his mouth. And then, this is a very compelling question to God, all of a sudden the Torah lists generation after generation like all these lineages. And this person gave birth to that person who had these children, and this person gave birth to that person who had these children, and this person... It's like, wait a second, it was just getting good. <laughs> what, are you, what are you doing? What are you doing with the family tree business? Like we're right in the middle of a very compelling moment. So what I would like to suggest is the following. God is answering Moshe. And God is answering Moshe through these lineages. Now the Me'a Shaloha counted the number of people that are brought and it's a very, you know, if you're learning a little bit of Kabbalah, it's an important number, okay? Very striking number. 45 names are mentioned. Now, 45 is the name Ma. And I'm going to try to make this clear as, clear, as as clear as I can. So let's go back to the idea of the Yudke Vavke. Right? Remember I told you the letter Vav, that's a straight line that's drawing the higher energy down into this world. Well, I'm not going to give you all of the steps, but just trust me. That Vav correlates with this word Ma. Why? Because there are different ways of spelling out the Yudke Vavke. For instance, Yud is always spelled Yud Vav Dalad. But hey is spelled hey yud or hey hey or hey aleph. Vav can be spelled vav vav, vav aleph vav, or vav yud vav. So because there are different ways to spell out these letters, correlating with the name of God, the yud ke vav ke, 
you're going to have different numerical values. The highest numerical value is going to be the largest number, and that's going to correlate with the yud of the yud kevavke, or the highest of the four worlds, a realm called Etzilus. That's going to be the number 72. And then as you get a step down, it's going to be the number 63. And then as you get a step down, it's going to be 45 or ma. And three steps down, that's the letter vav of the yud kevavke. So since the vav is drawing down the upper light into this world, the vav has to be in really good working order. In other words, if the pipes are clogged, all of the heavenly light is not coming down. That's where we are right now. That is a Kabbalistic description of the exile. All of the light above is not fully coming down because we haven't completely aligned ourselves. If you want to think about sort of a spiritual chiropractic alignment of our souls with the higher light, we haven't chiropractically aligned ourselves, made our will God's will. When we do that, that makes that pipeline, that vav, nice and straight. Okay? When the vav gets into this rectified place, right, that's called the ma chadash, the numa, which means the new vav or the corrective vav, where the divine flow is coming down completely. So now, let's factor all that into Moshe's dialogue with God. Moshe says, they're not going to listen to me. And, I have, and I'm uncircumcised. My lips are uncircumcised. You see, the vav can be blocked and not draw down the light. Do you know what the Kabbalists call it when it's blocked? They say there's an orla there. Just like Moshe is saying, there's an orla around my mouth. There's a blockage that's going to stop my words coming out, your words coming out through my mouth, which will lead to the redemption. And how does God answer him? With the word ma, with the rectified ma, with the idea that that pipeline is going to be rectified. Now, let me put it in conversational terms, in terms of how we can apply it to our own lives. What I'd like to suggest God is saying is the following. Do you see all of these generations that have come down? Right? All the lineage, the 45 names, all these families. Do you see all of the life that's been going on that I've been bringing into the world? Just like I've been doing all that, I'm also going to bring the redemption. In other words, what's the proof that it's going to work out? The proof that it's been working out. <laughs> the very fact that one day leads into another day is not the strengthening of the iron bars of this jail that we're in. It's a furthering of the promise that all the obstacles are going to go away because we're still in the game. You know, I, I challenge people to think about five years ago when that rent check was due and you didn't know how you were going to get it. Well, here you are right now. 
right? So the very fact that you're here, the very fact that we're enduring, is proof that God's promises are going to be fulfilled. Now, a few years into my journey of taking my soul and why there is a world and why there is a me and everything like that more seriously, I asked myself this question, why do I believe so much? And without even thinking, this is what came into my head. When I was growing up, my father was almost compulsive in saying, have I ever given you my word and not kept it? He would say it to me again and again and again and again and again and again. And I thought to myself, if my father was careful to keep his word, how much more so is God going to keep his word? And it's the Kalvachomer. It's that Kalvachomer again. And I'll tell you something even deeper. I heard Reb Shlomo say this in the name of one of the Rebbe's, which is if you want to believe in God more, make sure that you keep your word. What's the connection? Because so many people say they're going to do things and they don't do them. And as a result, you don't even believe in yourself anymore. So if you don't even believe in yourself anymore, how are you going to believe in God? So the very act of keeping your word will give you strength to believe in God. Because as you believe in yourself more, you will believe in God more. Because we tend to project our inner landscape onto the world. And if, we, if our inner landscape says that my word is meaningless, then when we think about God, whether consciously or unconsciously, we, re, we project our own lack of reliability onto God. And we say, how do we know? One of the great Haftarahs is about the birth of Shimshon. Shimshon, you know, Samson, that's Samson. Samson's mom was very great. Like, most of the story happens through Samson's mom and not Samson's dad. The angel comes to Samson's mom, and then she gets the dad and goes back and forth, and she says, you know, this holy man promised us a, a, a baby, and, and then, you know, the dad is like, I want to meet him, and, and then he comes again, and then they want to feed him, and they end up making a, offering a, a Corbin, and then, as the fire of this offering that they're making to God as a thanksgiving for this good news that they've received, this person that they thought was a man all of a sudden floats up in the fire and like goes up into heaven. So they realize at that moment, that was an angel. That was not a human being. That was an angel. And then Shimshon's Dad says, we're going to die. You, people don't see things like that and live. And then the mom says something unbelievable back. She says, would God have led us through this entire story if, 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 if the end of this is that we die now? The whole point is that we're going to live and have this baby that we were promised. That's the whole point is that we're going to live. So, so this is a, that is... Talking to us, talking to us for all time about the Jewish people. Are we encountering this par that says this and no more? 
No, we've been showed that we endure. Rabbi Tzvi Freeman, when he was here, he, he, he was talking about this very Kabbalistic model, how the Sitra Achra, the other side, ingests the Jewish people. But we give the Sitra Achra indigestion because you can't digest the Jewish people. <laughs> we can't be digested. The reason why we've endured is because we are going to endure. And it's this energy of paro that comes and says, par, this and no more. But if you keep on going, what do you get? You get to the ayin, the 70 years of David Melech, and then you get to the hay of this world transforming to the next world. That's the narrative. We've been told the end at the beginning. Schopenhauer, fancy philosopher, hated Jews. Why? Because he said we gave the world optimism. We are criminally responsible <laughs> for giving hope to the world. But what if there actually is a happy ending? <laughs> then are you a cockeyed optimist, right? Are you a Pollyanna? Right? Are you naive or delusional? Right? Are you taking the opiate of the masses? Or are you actually just saying the truth? That I'm, I'm sorry to disappoint you, depressed personality. You know, <laughs> hateful Jew hating man. I'm, I apologize, but there's a happy ending. It, it gives me terrible sorrow to inform you of the happy ending that's coming. And so what I would suggest to you is to understand that it is a sign of sophistication not to be cynical, that the true sophistication comes from seeing past the negativity and understanding the goodness that not, is, not only is there, but was implanted from the very beginning and is the point of the entire process. Again, do we understand a God who's at war with himself? Or do we understand a process that's taking place that we are privileged to play a part in? How are we looking at the world? And guess what? This is up to us. We get to decide. We get to decide. And no one is forcing another view on you. To the extent that you're not on board with this, that is your decision not to be on board with this. And to the extent that you used to see it another way and you want to see it another way, join the club. Join the club. Because it's called the Jewish light unto the nations. It's called the Torah. And it's called God's awesome plan and will. What follows now are some questions and answers. So, so the question is, is there a certain number of people, a critical mass, so to speak, that is necessary for the, for the redemption? So, you know, interestingly, it says in the, in the Gemara that there are 36 tzaddikim, what's known as the Lamed Vavniks. Lamed Vav is the number 36. The, these Lamed Vavniks that are these hidden tzaddikim that, the, that the, whole, the whole world continues to exist based on their, their righteousness. 
So there's, there's an interesting number that's actually given, but that's just that the world continues to exist. It, it's not really the answer to the next question. What about for the world to be redeemed? And all I can do is to, is to tell you a teaching that I heard from Reb Shlomo that I think answers that. And he says, how do we know that it won't be a, 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 a man who's lying in a gutter, right? Who davens for Mashiach to come. How do we know that it's not going to be his prayer that doesn't bring Mashiach? So to me, and this is just me talking, that means that there isn't a number. That there's just a state of consciousness that arrives that, or, or that God just decides that now it's time. You know, so, and, and whenever it comes to counting, remember that we've got different things when we talk about the arrival of the next era. One is the Gomorrah says in Sanhedrin that, that the more you set a date and predict a date that, that, that Mashiach will come, the more you delay Mashiach. And that Mashiach is going to come at a time when we're, when we're surprised. And not only that, but that you're not allowed to count people, that people are not numbers. So, so you have all of these things that mitigate against, against this idea that it's going to be a certain number. Having said that, I will give you a, an example on the other side, not, not quite the same, but I saw it in the Handbook of Jewish Thought by Rabbi Ari Kaplan that, when, that one of the conditions, one of the conditions of prophecy being restored to the world is that a majority of Jews, the majority of Jews, will be living in the land of Israel. And we're very close to that moment. So, so there is an example where you've got a, a, a head count. Do you know what I mean? But again, that's the restoration of prophecy. That's not necessarily how many Jews have to be, say, keeping the Torah for, for Mashiach to come. But so, so, you know, there is... It says that Mashiach will come speedily in its time. So that's, that's from the prophet Yeshaya. So that, that sounds like a contradiction. In its time means a, st- a set date. Speedily means in advance of a set date. So what does it mean, speedily in its time? So the rabbis explain that it isn't a contradiction, that if we merit it, it will come before its time. If we don't, it will come in its time. But in both scenarios, it's coming. So where is Mashiach in the Torah? So the most descriptive explanations and examples of Mashiach are in the Talmud and in the prophets. So so it's a good question, where in the five books do you see it? And the clearest prophecy for Mashiach actually comes from all people, the greatest enemy in, in his day of the Jewish people from Bilaam. This is the words of Bilaam. So he's pro- God is speaking through Bilaam. This is in Numbers chapter 24, verse 17. I shall see him, but not now. I shall look at him, but it is not near. A star has issued from Jacob, and a scepter bearer, that means a king. We say, Melech HaMashiach. And a scepter bearer has risen from Israel, and he shall pierce the nobles of Moab, and undermine all the children of Seth. Edom shall be a conquest, and Seir shall be the conquest of his enemies, and Israel will attain success. So there is 
there is probably <clears throat> the clearest reference to Mashiach in the five books. And the footnote here in the art scroll says, it's on page 872, I shall see him, but not now. Bilaam spoke about the very distant future of the Jewish people, the time when the final messianic redemption would come. Thus, his entire series of pronouncements encompassed four periods in Jewish history. In the wilderness, their impending conquest of the land, their period of greatness after conquering the land and their surrounding enemies, and now of the end of days, says the Ramban. It's very interesting because you would imagine that it would come from Moshe or from Abraham, not from Bilaam. But if our greatest enemy is already predicting Mashiach, then in a very peculiar way, it almost gives more legitimacy to the prophecy. You know, because in other words, he would be the one who is least inclined to, to mention it. I'll give you another example, which is the very first word of the Torah is predicting Mashiach. Remember, the Zohar says that the entire Torah is contained within the first word, Breshis. Breshis, I heard Rabbi Tatz say, means out of beginnings. The word beginning implies middle and end. In other words, the word beginning is talking about a process that's taking place. So the very first word of the Torah is telling you that you're part of an unfolding process. So that's, to me, that's a very compelling source as well. Okay, everyone should have a great week. Continue to pray for Israel. Remember, wherever you are in your own life, you're on the front lines. Thanks for listening. We do this every week. So join in again next Sunday for a new podcast where we explore the amazingness of life. And review us and send in any comments or suggestions. I'd love to hear them.